And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to the Full 60 featuring Craig Custance and presented by The Athletic. Each week, we'll dive into the biggest stories in hockey while bringing in unique voices to entertain and explain all aspects of the game. Hey, this is Craig, and welcome to this week's episode of The Full 60, and I am excited for a return appearance to The Full 60 of the great Bob McKenzie, author of the book, Everyday Hockey Heroes, More Inspiring Stories About Our Great Game. And of course, you know Bob is the, the greatest insider of all time. Bob, how are you? Excellent, Craig. How are you doing? I'm good. I, I'm, I'm full of energy. Had a week off for Thanksgiving here in the U.S. Um, got to watch the Detroit Lions blow another Thanksgiving Day game. Packed on 15 pounds. I, I'm ready to go. I feel great. You're better than Matt Patricia. Then. <laughs> I am. I, I mean, that's uh, probably a long list at this point of people. But yeah, that's, uh, you never want to embarrass yourself on, on national TV um, if you, as, a, as a football coach. But Bob, I, I want to say first and foremost, first of all, congratulations on, on another book. I know how hard a process that is. It's got to feel good right now. To like, This is the fun part, right? When you get to promote it yeah. and sell it. And So congratulations. That's, that's got to feel great. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I'm actually fortunate because, you know, my name is on the book and, and I, I did write the introduction and I did write the first chapter and I did have significant input into the editorial process for all the other chapters and who's featured and whatever. But my partner in crime, Jim Lang, does the really heavy lifting. And Sarah St. Pierre, our editor at Simon Schuster, is so fantastic in what she does. And she comes armed with ideas and the soul and the conscience of the whole book, and she really gets it. And so as a result, in, in, in relative to your book writing experience and my previous book writing experiences, when I did Hockey Dad and Hockey Confidential, um, this one's yeah. actually enjoyable. It's uh, <laughs> <laughs> because uh, as we've discussed, privately, yes. book writing is hard. It's hard. It's really hard. And the payoff is we make so much money off of it that, <laughs> you know. <laughs> exactly. But you know what? It's The payoff is the book in your hand and something yeah. legacy, I guess, if you want to call it that. Um and, and that, but it's hard too, because, you know, historically we were writing, you're writing books, like you've got a full-time job and then some at the athletic right. and everything else you've done. Same thing. You know, that's why hockey confidential was really difficult for me because it was right in the throes of, you know, the busiest time of my career where you got so many yeah. things on the go. So anyways, nobody wants to listen to us complain about how hard our lives are so because they're not <laughs> no 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 but this so i th there's a couple things i want to get it with this book specifically and and i'm sure and i hate leading off with a, a question that i'm sure you've been asked a million times but I, as i was reading this 
it just reminded me of how much I love the concept, right? Of having people that maybe you've heard of some of the people, maybe you haven't, um, but having giving them the platform to share their stories that are so unique. What, what's the origin story of this concept? Well, if you really want to go right back, so Simon and yeah. Schuster did a book, and uh, and this is the I should have looked this up if I'd I'd known you're going to ask me this question. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Simon and Schuster had a really successful book written by a member of the Canadian Armed Forces who was in Afghanistan, and he okay. um, and and his story was that he he drove over he was in a an armored vehicle, and he drove over uh, an IED. And it blew up, and he lost his legs, and it was a phenomenal story of you know courage and 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 this individual. And I'll have to I'll, before too long. I'll... Is it unflinching? I was googling while you were talking. Yeah, well, yeah who's the author? Oh, uh, that was uh, oh Jody Mittick. Yes, there's another one called it. Everyday Heroes. That's it. Okay, okay. So there you go. So Jody Jody Mittick is the is is the the very first genesis of of what we're doing with Everyday Hockey Heroes. So the outgrowth of his biography, which was a bestseller in Canada from Simon and Schuster, is that they decided to do every a book called Everyday Heroes, um, and and he fronted that with an introduction and 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 what that's that's just a story that's just story after story first person stories of members of. Canadian Armed Forces, and some of them from World War One, some of them from World War Two, some of them from the Korean War, um, many of them from Afghanistan, and and the conflict that Jody was a part of, and um, and Sarah Saint Pierre was the editor on that book, and so Simon and Schuster decided that this concept could easily apply to you know different disciplines, and why not hockey? Right. So hockey's a big deal in Canada. Let's do everyday hockey heroes instead of everyday heroes, and let's make it um, inspiring stories on and off the ice for famous and not so famous people. And and that was what they pitched to me about three years ago. Right now, they'd already started putting the the first book together before they asked me to jump on board with Jim and Sarah. And then I they showed me a couple of sample chapters, and I was like, yeah, you know what? And to to your point, how you reacted, I reacted the same way when I read those stories. And I was like, I didn't know who Wayne St. Dennis is, but Wayne St. Dennis is a, a a blind guy who plays and manages the Toronto Ice Owls blind hockey team. I didn't know there was a blind hockey team and league in Canada, but there was. And it was an amazing story that Jim did with Wayne St. Dennis and, and about how he lost his eyesight when he was a teenager and loved to play hockey. He was a goalie and and wanted to get back into the game in some way and found out when he moved to Toronto from his home in Windsor that you could actually play in a, uh, on a team with other blind players in a, in a league with other blind teams. And it was a really mm. inspiring story. And I said, this is really cool. I like this concept. It's, it, and it's great. And so one, one thing really struck me as I, I mean, a couple things struck me. One, I, I love that that there's this platform for these stories because, you know, and I'm sure this is intentional, but it covers, uh, it's such a diverse group of voices, right? You know, in, in, and I love that, that that platform exists for them. But what what I also loved is that it sells. And I mean that, I mean that almost because the cynic in me is like, 
boy, like, does the general hockey public want to read about a, a 15 people who maybe they might know Jack Jablonski's story, story or, you know, Alex Mandricki's story, but they're, you know, the other, whatever. And I love that people are like, yes, give me a good story about somebody who is defying odds, and I will read that, and and I will, you know, and we can do multiple versions of this book. Well, well, like, you're, I love that. You're you're right, and and I had I wondered the same thing when I yeah when I jumped on board, I was you know because you and I are raised in a cynical world. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's what it is. I, I yeah. hate to say it, but you know yeah, but you know that was my first thought too. Okay, you know. Because there's a lot of hardcore hockey fans. They just want the meat and potatoes. You know, they, they want to know how the guy got to get pucks in deep and whatever. Or they just want to read about a, a hockey player and his life story. And they don't want a lot of frivolous other stuff or whatever. And and then you realize, well, first off, there's all these great stories out there. And they truly are inspiring. They really are. And, and, and the common denominator, like everybody that's featured in any of the chapters, the common denominator for me is they have an undying passion and love for the game of hockey. That's first and foremost. And, and then their stories spray all over the place after that. And in many instances, the stories, you know, there's there's some darkness and negativity in, in, in some of these stories because some of these people, because they were perceived as being different for some reason, um, even though they loved game as much as you and I, they get pushed to the margins. And in some cases, they felt like, I got to get out of this game. It's too toxic. The culture isn't for me. Um, and and yet they kept on pushing against it. They knock a wall down. They shatter a ceiling, whatever the case may be. And and they, they came out on the other side of it in a better place and feeling more centered in in their view of, of what hockey culture can and should be. So, yeah, I... I'm I'm the same as you. I, I these these stories actually it's not paying lip service to say they're inspiring stories. They are, but I also wonder what about mainstream hockey fans? Are they going to embrace a book that includes you know stories about race issues that that is about LGBTQ and 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 on and on and you know stories that focus this book is a soaring tribute to women. There's at least four chapters in there that are specifically about, you know, women, you know, trying to knock down the doors to get into where they need to get into the center of the game instead of being on the margins. And and that's so are there enough hockey fans out there that will buy this thing? And then the answer is yes. And on top of that, there's a whole bunch of non-hockey fans who, from what I understand of the demographics that buy the book, it is bought by people who aren't necessarily the biggest hockey fan in the world, but want to read some inspiring stories and might have a casual relationship with the game. Has that, um, and maybe it's too early in the process, Bob, but have you gotten any stories like that or feedback of somebody that was like, you know what, I'm not a huge hockey fan or, or this story really, you know, this story really of Joey Gale or whoever really struck with me and I could really relate. Yeah. Just in terms of some of the interviews I've done as part of the promo, because the, you, you know, the business we're in, you, you do get instant feedback more now because of social media and, and you at The Athletic, you know, you, you got comments at the end of your story. Did you like it? Uh, by the way, I always go in and give the big thumbs up for your stuff. I want to make sure. Do you? Yeah, Thank you. I uh, appreciate I that. Make sure Balances that, it out a little bit. I want to make sure that uh, <laughs> everything's good. But um, 
you don't really get a lot of instantaneous feedback other than some of the people that have interviewed said, I really like this story. It really, it really spoke yeah. to me or what have you. Um, I want to, st- I want to start with the, so just for the listener, a majority of the book is done first person's this, you know, through the voice of the people that are featured. Um, but there's one chapter that you wrote and it's through your perspective and um and i wanted to dive into that a little bit bob because it was i mean it was so timely right with everything that we dealt with this year with the race issues in social justice and when did you feel like okay this is this is how i need to start this this is really important for me to dive in this way yeah i guess probably in the wake of um the last fall last fall was kind of a watershed time in our in our it's certainly last season until the pandemic came anyways. Um, Cause you, you had, you know, the, the Don Cherry story in Canada, you had the Akeem mm-hmm. Aliou, um tweets and the subsequent um, exit of Bill Peters from the scene. Um, and so those, those types of issues were front and center. And then on top of that, we went through this incredible run of men behaving badly and NHL coaches behaving badly where there were all sorts of one example after another of, you know, somebody kicking here or hitting this guy or, or doing whatever and, you know, unacceptable stuff that reflected really poorly on what, for lack of a better term, I guess we call hockey culture. And, and so, so all of that stuff's swirling around and we pretty, you know, many of the stories that are in the book would address some or all of those, those issues. But, I was thinking about what was I, you know, as you mentioned, there's one chapter in particular that I write and I write it from my perspective, as opposed to the first person story that is um, prevalent throughout the rest of the book that, that Jim does with the various subjects. And um, so I, I started giving some thought, uh, you know, I, I initially was was inclined to do something on, on referee Kyle Rank um, in the NHL. Um, it, it's a, fantastic story the rank family and i know them really well because um kyle's dad rich was a guy who i got to know when our sons played together at st lawrence university and he passed away recently a number of years ago um but the 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 whole story of kyle rank and his family is pretty remarkable and i was thinking seriously of doing that one and i've written about it for tsm but i thought even a longer form treatment in the book would be really good but then I started thinking a little bit more about diversity and the whole race issue and what have you. And I thought back to the very first Everyday Hockey Heroes and the Wayne Simmons chapter that, that Jim Lang had done in there. And it, it struck me that Wayne Simmons is from Scarborough. I'm from Scarborough. Um, Wayne Simmons is one of 10 black players in the National Hockey League at various times that have come from Scarborough. I think I, I, I say in the book, and I don't know if I'm right or not because I didn't want to one of those things that's difficult to track down, but I can't imagine there's another city community that has put more black players in the National Hockey League than Scarborough. Mike Marzen, mm-hmm. um, Kevin Weeks, Anson Carter, the Stewart brothers, Anthony and Chris, Joel Ward, Wayne Simmons, uh, Chris Bedford, Sue, Nathan Robinson. Um, there's 10 in, mm-hmm. in total, soon to be 11 because Akil Thomas, who scored the game-winning goal for mm-hmm. Canada at the World Juniors last year in the LA Kings second round. He's destined to be an NHL, or he'll be number 11. So I started thinking that Scarborough's claim to fame is that they've put more black players in the National Hockey League than any other Canadian community. Um, and I started thinking what the Scarborough I grew up in was quite white in the 1960s. 
But I did recall right. playing against players of color and some black players in particular, and two of them stood out for me. And one of them was, his name was Terry Mercury. The other one was Lindbergh Gonzalez. And I didn't know them growing up at all, other than I knew of them. I, I didn't know them personally to talk to, or they, were, they weren't friends. Um, and, uh, and so I, I started thinking about their experience um, after race had come back to the forefront again in, in hockey. And, and we were talking about it again. And I thought I should, I should try and find these guys. Now, the reason I remember them so well is because A, they were black in a pretty much a predominantly white game at the time. B, they were very good players. Like they weren't, they weren't schmoes like me. I was, I was at the low end of the food chain for the 1956 birth year as far as hockey goes, competitive hockey goes. These guys were amongst the better players. I would say they were amongst the better players in the city of Toronto for their age at the time. So I remember them for that reason. I remember Terry in particular because in Pee Wee, he was well over six feet tall. And he's only, he's six foot three now, but he, he had an early growth spurt. He had a tall, gangly kid and a really good player. And Lindbergh, I remember, not so much because he was tall, but he was so athletic and so strong at the time. Now he's he's five seven, five eight, 160 odd pounds now, but he was probably five seven, five eight, 160 odd pounds in Pee Wee. And he was so athletic and fearsomely strong and, and hard to play against and really good. And so I started thinking about these guys and I thought, I got to believe their experience growing up in quite white Scarborough in the 1960s, which has become this factory for producing black hockey players was much different than mine. I should talk to them about their experiences, yeah. compare and contrast. And I did. And the result is what I put in chapter one. When you were having those conversations, did it did it change how you thought of your childhood or growing up? You know what I mean? Like you weren't thinking yeah. through the, that lens at all, I'm sure, as a kid. No, I, I wasn't. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not surprised by what Terry Lindbergh told me. And, and their stories were very similar. Okay. When they were very young, six, seven, eight, nine years old, hockey was an idyllic place for them. Um, their teammate, they, they got along with their teammates. Their parents got along well with the other parents. Everything was pretty perfect at that younger age. And both of them remarked that, that racism isn't something that's innate in most people. It has to be taught or learned or developed, if anyone's an oxymoron there in terms of, you know, because it's not a positive development. But nevertheless, um, they found as they got older, it became more difficult. And they both went through similar experiences where in, in crucial times in for their hockey careers as 14 and 15 and 16 year olds, they had the wind knocked out of their sails as Lindbergh put it um, by, by their own teammates and, and some pretty overt racism and, and lack of acceptance that really in many ways robbed them of their passion for the game. And, um, and that was the biggest difference between them and, and me as I obviously experienced none of that. Now I knew when I was gonna talk to them that they probably had stories like that but at the time, when I was 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 years old, I probably didn't give it that much thought. But I, it did get me to thinking about the whole issue of race and, and where we're at. And, and I don't know if I was the norm or an exception, but we had a teacher in grade 6 as part of our curriculum at Bendale Public School in Scarborough. Uh, on the curriculum that year was a book called Black Like Me. And it always stuck with me. That was the, that was probably the first time, I think I was grade, I'm pretty sure it was grade six. 
that was probably the first time I ever thought about race in in that way because Black Like Me is a story that was written in the late 1950s and it was a, a white man who had his skin the pigmentation of his skin died so that it was so that he appeared to be black or colored and and then went through the the, the heart of the US deep south Mississippi Alabama Georgia and basically wrote about his experiences first person experience of what it was like to be actually be a white person who looks like he's black um, and is, is, is pretending to be black uh, and then live that life in the deep South. And it was virulent, virulent racism as you might expect. And, and that had a big impact on me at a very young age where I recognized. And, and the other thing is, you know, I'm sure for a lot of us, we all grew up huge sports fans. If you were a sports fan in the 1960s, um, there was a lot of race and social issues at the forefront. I mean, I was absolutely captivated, and I, I, I can't even stress the word enough, captivated by what John Carlos and Tommy Smith did at the, uh, at the Olympics in, in Mexico City with the black glove salute and not wearing any shoes, and, and Muhammad Ali changing his name and Muhammad Ali being stripped of his title and, and, and prepared to go to prison as a conscientious objector. So the 60s was, you know, it was, a, it was an interesting time to grow up because all those social issues are front and center. And, and as we went through this summer of, of unrest with, and, and civil protest and, and you, know, um, you know, seeing the American cities, some of them turned upside down and, and what have you, it, it, it threw me back to the 60s when Detroit and Chicago and, and so many of the American cities, and we'd watch the American news every night and, and see a lot of these cities burning. And, and so from a young age, I felt like I was well aware of race. I'm not sure I ever, you know, I can't sit here and claim that I've been an advocate my whole life for doing anything in, in particular, other than just knowing, you know, just because a person's got different colored skin, you, you need to treat that person with some, you know, with respect and dignity or whatever, but outside of that. So, so that's kind of the, the long and the short of the history of it anyways. Uh, to me, the, the heartbreaking portions were, you know, I, I think you anticipate when you're reading something like this, you know, the opponents are going to be, there's going to be some slur, racial slurs yeah. on the ice and maybe some parents are shouting things. To me, it was, it was the dressing room, your, your own, own teammates, teammates oh, so, your own coach, so you know, it's like, that like that killed me. Like, how do you as a as a kid, I I would get out so fast. Like, how do you power well, through that? Like, I don't like that. That to me was hard. And, and Terry was unbelievably eloquent on on that. Um, and and Lindbergh was unbelievably um, brutally candid on that too. Mm. Like he he used the phrase, you know, those those guys killed me. He's talking about his mm. teammates in. In, I think it was midget or junior B. So he was 16 years old and he was playing with different, he kind of advanced up and was playing junior B with a bunch of guys that he'd never played hockey with before. And he had such a marvelous experience. He had a coach when he was, he had an advocate, Tom Horton Sr., ran Horton Spice Mills and sponsored hockey. Um, and, and Lindbergh says, Tom Howard, Tom Horton Sr., he had my back, man. Like if, if I was, if somebody on the other team would, would, uh, 
throw a racial slur at me and I'd be upset on the bench or whatever. He'd say, don't you worry about it. He, he had my back every minute. I just, I love that man. He was so good to me and, and that. And then he goes, but then I got to this, this, this junior B team and it was a whole bunch of people I didn't know and they just never accepted me. And he goes, man, they, they, they knocked the window out of my sails. Man, that year, that year just killed me. And it, lit- it, it, mm. it literally killed his passion for the game at the time. Um, and, and, and Terry was very eloquent talking about it was bad enough that he had teammates who were openly racist with him, using the N-word, um, tormenting him. And, and he said and he didn't expect necessarily that his other teammates, who he felt like he was actually friends with some of them, that they were necessarily going to stand up for him. He was. He, he said he wasn't even necessarily expecting that, but when when he became withdrawn and sullen and, and into himself, and they started remarking that, like, what, what's wrong with you, man? Like, what, why are you why why are you acting the way you're acting? And he he said that was right. the worst part, and and that's simply <sighs> the lack of acknowledgement of can't you see what I'm going through here? Can't you for one minute try to understand? The, the hurt I'm experiencing here. And he's only 14, 15 years old. And as he said, I didn't have the skills. I didn't have the skills at the time to articulate what I was feeling or why I was feeling it. But it frustrated me to no end that some of these other guys who were supposed to be, I'm, he says, I'm just not asking you to be my best friend. I'm just asking you to be my teammate. Um, so it's so, so painful to hear. And, and so, you know, I've, I've had kids that played the game and I, I always try to view everything through the prism of my kids and my family. And I think to myself, imagine if, if my boys played hockey and had to experience what Terry and Lindbergh had to experience from their own teammates and supposed to be their friends. And, and the positive experience that my kids had and that I had, and, and, that, and the reason we had it is because we were white, which is the very definition of white privilege. And, and these guys didn't have that. And it, it was heartbreaking to hear, it was. Yeah, that, like that was that was crushing. All right. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Like last time you were on, we, we got into your kind of your backstory, but I didn't, I don't think we got into like what you're growing up and what your parents did. And, and I, I, it, we, it looks like we had very similar upbringings because you know your, your dad was on the production line, your mom's working in the service department, you know, at a Chevy dealership, if I remember correctly, and you know you're in blue collar area, and I, you know, I grew up in Detroit area, same thing. If my parents were teachers, but every one of my best friends, close friends, dad was on working on the line at Ford or GM or mom, you know, same thing, and and so. I don't think we felt privileged, right? Like I didn't grow up feeling privileged, but it, you know, I think you articulated well the difference between white privilege and privilege, and I think yeah, that was important. Yeah, exactly. And and it's funny because white privilege, you know, it comes with a negative connotation, yeah. and I don't know that it should because it's more just an observation 
as opposed to you're not denigrating somebody by saying you've got white privilege. You're just making an observation of their status. Um, and it's not to be confused with privilege, um, being privileged. Right. Because you're right. I mean, you know, my mom had rheumatoid arthritis like really bad. It was, her life was terrible. Mm. Her Every day of her life was like just hellacious. And she died in her 50s from complications from it. She spent a good chunk of her life in a wheelchair and, mm. and every minute of every day, it was, it was just, it was terrible. And, and my dad had to work so hard and had to take care of her. And, you know, it was, there were, there were a lot of times when there was no joy in our house. Mm. Um, and yet they, they still managed to try and, you know, try to rise above that and give me joy and, allow me to play hockey and go do the things that I wanted to do. Um, so yeah, I, I did not lead a privileged life, but when you read Terry's story or Lindbergh's story, and then you read my story, there's a big difference. And, and so what's the difference? Well, it's difference is black and white. They were black. I was white. And so by the time we all ended up playing juvenile hockey, so juvenile hockey is where dreams go to die. And actually, no, it's not where dreams go to die. It's where dreams went to die. Like they went to die before you get to juvenile. Yeah. You, your dreams are dead if you're in juvenile hockey. Yeah. But juvenile hockey were two of the best years, best hockey years I ever had. I had great friends. I had great teammates. Uh, I was playing the best hockey of my life. Um, it, it was such an enjoyable experience. And, and I found my stride. I, I got confident. It was just everything about it was wonderful. And then you got Lindbergh and Terry and their juvenile hockey experiences. They were basically playing out the string and they'd been robbed of their passion of the game because of how they were treated by teammates and opponents and, and basically because of racism. And so why did, why did I end up having the opportunity for such a positive development experience and they had such a negative one? Because I had the privilege of being white. Simple as that. Just for the color of my skin, I got to find my way. And just for the color of their skin, they didn't. Right. And, and so that's why people shouldn't be offended if they hear white privilege. It's just a very narrow definition of your status at any particular given time. And, and so then the paths you know, and I guess we're extrapolating here, but I imagine that positive experience in hockey, that confidence you gain is a, you know, the direct result is a career in hockey for you and an incredible career. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, and the, the, the same happened when I went to journalism school and, and I graduated, you know, I, I never had a, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to get jobs, good jobs and work my way up the food chain in, in the hockey writing business. And again, um, I didn't think it was easy at the time right? and I don't feel like it was. And I feel like I worked my ass off and knocked down doors and harassed people and, and would do anything to, to get ahead and, and whatever. But, and I never gave it a moment's thought at the time, but if I'd been black or I'd been a woman or if I was gay or, you know, LGBTQ, whatever, um, would it have been as easy for me to become Bob McKenzie, the hockey insider? And of course, the answer is no. Right. It wouldn't have. Been. It right. would have presented a whole bunch of other challenges. So I, you know, and you know, 
if your name is Bob McKenzie in Canada and and you're you're white and you love hockey and you've got a passion for it and you're halfway decent at whatever craft it is that you you're you're associating with that hockey in this case being a reporter or a um the road couldn't have been any easier in many respects, but I never felt like it was easy at the time, but it was yeah. compared to other people who would get doors slammed in their face because of, because they're quote unquote different. Mm. Um, this is a different line of kind of thought, but you know, sticking with your parents and, and your upbringing in, in the community you grew up in, how, how do you think that's, I, I'm always curious, and maybe because I relate so much to this, and I'm, you know, and I'm dealing with, with the next generation. How how do you think? It, I'm sure it instilled a, a heavy like work value, right? Like how you approach your life and you you work your rear off because you grew up in that environment. And and then the question, the follow is, you know, how do you instill that? I mean, your kids have turned out great. How did you instill that in your kids who didn't necessarily grow up in that environment? Yeah, um, I guess. Well, first off, is it the Protestant work ethic or the Presbyterian work ethic, or is it both? I can't remember what exactly the the terminology is, but whatever it was, that was what was in my family. Yeah. So my mom and my dad, they were Protestant. They were Presbyterians. My dad was uh, an Orangeman, Ulsterman from Northern Ireland or whatever. But, you know, he he had a voracious um, work ethic, and, and so did my mom. And, and so that was all I ever knew. And I, that just sort of came naturally to me. And, uh, so I just, you know, the apple didn't fall too far from the tree or as my mom used to say, you didn't lick it off the grass. Um, (laughs) so it's, so, so that was all I I ever knew. And I just thought that's how you go about it. And, And I've always tried to maintain that. Um, and I tried to instill it in my kids as well. And, 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 but here's the thing, what I've come to realize just as I've gotten older and seen all sorts of families raised and, and whatever, um, you, you should never give yourself too much credit as a parent for anything that you do or don't do and, or, or blame for that matter too, because I've seen kids that have been raised in the same family by the same people. Um, and you know, one of them ends up being a beacon of virtue and the other one ends up being a, you know, a, a criminal or, or what have you. And there's, you can sit there and as a parent and say, well, I'm going to do all the right things and my kids are going to turn out well. <laughs> I, it scares me sometimes to think how much of that was actually out of our control. Yeah, we thought right. it was in our control. It's comforting to think it's in your control and you do have to kind of show them the way and what have you, and you hope they pick up on it as they go. But, you know, both of my kids uh, have been very fortunate to have things have turned out as well as they have. And, and I've tried to make sure that as they've gotten older, too, that they realize, you know, that they, they probably did leave more of a privileged life than I did. Um, but, you know, uh, and, and they also, because they're both involved in hockey, you know, Mike's the general manager and head coach of the Kitchener Rangers. Sean is the... It works for Rogers and Sportsnet and Hockey Night in Canada as a ringside reporter and uh, and broadcaster. Um, you know, they've they've gotten a nice white privilege bounce as well because when you're white and you choose to go into a sport like hockey, you've you've got you got a real good head start on a lot of people. Right. Um, maybe you and I aren't the people to discuss this or to analyze this, but 
you do have the perspective of you have you, and I don't know who can say this, but you, you know, you've had these meaningful conversations with Terry and, and Lindbergh. You've had meaningful conversations with, you know, the next generation, the Kevin Weeks, Anson Carters, and I'm sure with like a, a guy like Akil Thomas. How much different do you think it is now for, you know, that the, that generation coming through now, in Scarborough, for well, the, the black you know, hockey player? Probably the, the the first answer I would give you to that question would be, is is I'm probably not qualified to That's give right. the answer. That's fair. Because because what I've realized is because I've done so many interviews promoting the book, people are saying, well, do you think the hockey culture is a lot better now than it was? And, and the short answer is yes, it is. Is it nearly good enough? No, it's not. But I've become more finely tuned to the sensitivities of people of color or anybody who whatever whatever demographic they happen to belong to, I become much more finely tuned to, I shouldn't be the one speaking as to, are things better or worse? You know, I've got to believe that whatever Terry and Lindbergh experienced, it's probably better now relative to what they experienced for most of the players that have made it to the National Hockey League or players of color today. But by the same token, we'd be foolish to think that that there isn't still um, racism on, you know, and, and some of it, some people are blissfully ignorant of, of racial tendencies and some people are willfully ignorant. Um, but, you know, it's it's got to be better, but, you know, not nearly good enough from what I understand, I would think. And, and really, like, take hockey out of the equation for a minute. I mean, come on. We always talk about hockey culture, and I get that, um, and that. But it's not—it's not hockey culture. It's culture. It's society. Right. right. You know, or, or George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and everything that's gone on with Black Lives Matter. You know, I think. You know, so, so it would be easy for me or you or somebody to say, "Well, it's better now than in the 1960s." But you know, those that would bring up George Floyd or Breonna Taylor would say, "No, it's not." So, you know, as a couple of white dudes talking yeah. about it, you got to be careful in trying to assess where culture society's at. It's, it's, we'd like to think it's headed in the right direction, but it's a painful process. So maybe the better question is, what have you learned your, your role needs to be, right? Like, I, I, you know, in, in taking these on and having these discussions what, in, in that as you've you it's hard to tackle these because you can misstep and then it's then it's you end up trying to do something that you think is positive and it's not and so along the way and and taking these on and having these conversations that aren't always easy this you know the difficult conversations what have you learned your role is in this process well i i I think you just want to try to contribute to the conversation in some way and you know this chapter that i wrote in this particular book um, for me, helps to helps to do that in some way, um, you know. And, and I think, I think, and again, I can't speak for all white people, but um, when when at the height of Black Lives Matter um, in in the summer, I, I think we were all feeling like, okay, we acknowledge those of us that acknowledge and recognize there's a problem. Then how do we go about contributing in some tangible or meaningful 
and and that's the hard part and 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 to to the point it's all well and good that in grade six i i read black like me and we had extensive discussions in my bendel public school elementary school class about racism and and that um it's all well and good that i was keenly aware and and right on the muhammad ali conscientious objector you know john carlos tommy smith bandwagon as as a as a young sports fan growing up in the 60s and 70s and and had the social awareness of all that but i mean beyond that be beyond being aware of it and and captivated and and like inspired by it you know that, that's that for me i i can remember at the time all of those smith carlos that that's where I, I I thought that's real courage. Like this is, could, could you imagine doing what these guys are doing, the stand they're taking? Um, so what, you know, now from the cozy confines of where we're at in our life, what else can we do? And, and that's the part I think a lot of people wrestle with. So I think, you know, to help create awareness, um, you know, find some tangible ways to, Support to support the various causes, whatever that may be. And there's certain uh, charities and outreaches that you can you can go to, and a lot of them were highlighted um, over the course of the summer when there was as much civil unrest going on as there was. So I, I don't know. It's yeah. uh, that's the the harder needle to thread. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone. Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. All right, Bob, and I'm, you know, we don't, I'm not, I want to leave a lot for the reader in this book, so I don't, we don't need to dive into each story. But oh, there was, we're good, don't worry. There was, um, there was one on Joey Gale, who I, I hadn't heard of, um, a gay hockey player who came out in college and when you you just mentioned cur- the courage it takes, right, to 
to stand up for what you believe in and to stand out in a sport that maybe doesn't support you. And there was a moment in in his story where he's talking about playing in an all-star game. I think it was in Minnesota. And he's, you know, he decides he's going to use the, the, the pride tape on his hockey stick in this, you know, in this big moment for him. And then having to answer, answer to it in the dressing room and, and, seeing the different response, like how, how important it was for him to feel supported in that moment by his teammates or not, you know, or not ostracized. I, like it was so powerful like to, to read his thoughts of what was going through his mind and, and how close he almost didn't do it, you know, in, in what he put on the line, I thought was so fascinating. Yeah, it really was. And um, the, I should first point out too, that there's two stories in the book I think there's two. I think it's just two. The the Joey Gale story that you're talking about and the Jessica Platt story about her transgender experience. Mm -hmm. Um, Those were the two stories in the book. They're the two best written stories in the book. And I say that because Joey Gale and Jessica Platt wrote them themselves. Um, That was the... Jim Lang didn't do that one. And I know Jim is not going to be offended if I say that Joey's story <laughs> yeah. and, and Jessica's story are the best written stories in the book because they they are they're so powerful. Um, and and to think they wrote these stories and, and put, puts you and me and Jim and everybody else to shame. We all call ourselves professional writers, and then you <laughs> right. see see somebody like Joey or Jessica in the story they 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 tell and the 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 way they weave it and and my goodness it was it was impactful on so many levels but to the to joey gale story so yeah he's a closeted gay teenager in in minnesota and he hasn't told his family or friends that he's gay in his mind he's living a lie but he he doesn't feel comfortable in coming out but he also and he loves 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 hockey uh goes without saying teenage Teenage boy in Minnesota. Yeah, that's right. Loves hockey. Wow, what a surprise. (laughs) Um, So loves hockey, but quite frankly, doesn't feel comfortable or love what he's hearing and seeing and feeling in the hockey culture on his hockey team. And that is both, um, you know, homophobia, different forms. Some of it was overt, you know. Some of it was he could tell that, that there were players on his team that, you know, would speak very negatively about the prospect of gay people. And he knew he was gay, but nobody else knew that. Uh, and, and then there's what I call, you know, inadvertent homophobia, where you could just use terminology, a curse word in your mind, has, has been around hockey as long as the game has been around. And you never thought anything of it until you realize that if said to, to a gay person, that's, you know that's very hurtful. So we 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 like to think we're gonna, you know, be civilized. And if you realize you've used just gratuitously for no particular reason, um, offend somebody. Well, don't use it anymore. But that, that's quite a side of the story for another day. Um, but anyways, so so Joey is Joey's finding himself being pushed away from the hockey culture, and not at all happy or comfortable in his environment. And so he basically leaves the game because it's just not for him. He goes off to university, I believe it was in Omaha. And while he's at university, um, had a very queer professor who, who was an inspiration for him to come out to his family and friends. 
And he did so and was much happier for it. But he decided, you know what, I really love hockey. I want to get back to the game if I could. And so he decided to go back and, and play and play in that men's league. And he got chosen to play in the men's all-star um, game. And that's where he decided I'm, 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 I'm gay. I'm not ashamed of it. And I'm not going to be making a secret of it anymore. And so he wanted to make his statement. And the statement he made was taping up his stick with the pride tape, the rainbow colored tape that, and, and, and symbol of the LGBTQ community. And so he goes to the dressing room, plops it in the stick rack there, and and somebody says, hey, what's with the gay tape? And he goes, well, I'm gay. And what he found was that he was very warmly embraced and welcomed by those players. He didn't feel marginalized in any way at all, which was a stark contrast to how he felt as a closeted gay youth playing in, in Minnesota. And he, you know, I don't want to say it's a happy, happily ever after story, but he got back into a, a, what I call the new hockey culture that was willing to accept him for who and what he was. And so it, it is, it's a great story. And, and there's so many different ways to directions to go with this. The, the, the other part of that story that I absolutely love is that we, that Jim Lang, as a corollary to that, there's another chapter on the guys who founded Pride Tape, Dean Petruk and Jeff McLeod. Two straight white dudes, one from Nova Scotia, one from Edmonton, both of whom were working for advertising marketing agency in uh, in Edmonton, and and they they'd done alumni work, some NHL alumni work. Billy Ranford, who was a friend of theirs, and uh, and and they they were seeing a University of Alberta study that said when professional sports was on television, the the number, the usage of homophobic slurs on social media would increase dramatically. So there was a direct link between professional sports being on TV and the use of homophobic slurs on social media. And, and they started thinking, that's not right. We need to try and do something about that. So as marketing guys and advertising guys, they came up with the idea of pride tape and let's do something in the hockey community that would give LGBTQ hockey players and supporters something to rally around. And that whole story of how Pride Tape came to be and the role that Billy Ranford and Andrew Ferentz mm-hmm. played in, in making it happen, when it's combined with the, how powerful the symbol of Pride Tape was That's for right. Joey Gale, I, I, I love those two stories. It was, it, it was great. And as you know, Bob, it's the details that make the story. And there was a moment, like, again, this is stuff I never would think about, but Joey had had to test, you know, coming out and what that conversation, even to himself. And the first time he did it was to his 11-pound Maltese, white Maltese dog. <laughs> and, you know, the dog was cool with it. So, and I just, like, the, the, those little details and those moments that you don't think about, like, okay, here's this guy saying, okay, I, I need to tell somebody and I'm going to start with my, my dog. I, I, like, I loved that. That's great. And, and you know, it's funny, the, the, the various themes that run throughout the various stories. So we talked about Lindbergh and, and Terry having these experiences and how hockey was idyllic for them when they were six, seven, eight, nine. Yeah. But as they got into their teenage years, it became hard. And it was at the hands of their own teammates. And then they both had the passion sucked out of the game for them mm. by this racism. So that was very similar. The, the, the similar thing that, that runs through a lot of these stories and it's in the Joey Gale story, but it's also in the Jessica Platt story about her experience as a transgender athlete. And is is that 
like Joey, Jessica never felt comfortable in the hockey culture growing up as a, as a kid in Brights Grove, Ontario, near Sarnia, and, and was really feeling as though here was a young person being pushed away from the game of hockey, even though there was incredible love for the game of hockey. And, and then she goes through and documents the transgender experience, which includes everything from hormone therapy to surgery, which is incredible. And, and the emotional impact of reading that story for me was incredible. You know, I'm sure I'm like you. We, we, we like to think of ourselves as reasonably well-educated, um, not smart necessarily, but reasonably <laughs> no. well-educated. So, so we understand at face value what it means to be transgender. That is, yeah. you're born a certain way. You don't feel comfortable in your body. You, it's so uncomfortable and so difficult for you that you have to go to the lengths of going through hormone therapy and or surgery to, 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 to change genders, to become who you think you actually are. And, and so Jessica was pushed away from the game the same way that Joey was pushed away from the game. And yet she, Jessica kept on coming back because the love of the game was stronger than whatever force was pushing her away. In, in other words, her desire to be a part of it and to be in the center of it was greater than the efforts of others to make to exclude her or push her to the margins. And, and even on a second round of after she went through the transgender experience to not be fully accepted as a woman in women's hockey, it was like a double whammy of, of, of non-acceptance and, and exclusion. And she fought through that and now she's in a good place and her story is really compelling. Yeah, I mean, you talk about the threads that go throughout the book. It's funny, when I was done, I just wrote down one question like to, to t discuss with you because what struck me was for every story there is of these people, in some cases they don't power through, right? Like like society gets the better of them or hockey's toxic culture at the moment gets the better of them and understandably so, and yep. some do. There's, there's countless of people that either got out this, you know, whenever it was too much. And I'm sitting here thinking to myself after reading this, how different hockey would look if that wasn't the case or how how different hockey may look 10 years from now if it is indeed better as our hope is. Like it's it, yeah. it, it's going to completely transform the sport. Yeah, and, and I think you read some of these stories and you can sense the frustration of a Daniel Sauvageau, for example. Mm. You know, there's, there's going to be a woman who coaches, like stands behind the bench of an NHL team at some point. We're already seeing more and more women get skills coaches and skating coaches and, and what have you. But, you know, we haven't gotten to the point yet where there's actually a woman behind the bench in the NHL, at least not to my knowledge. Um, and, and, and you can sense the frustration that Daniel Sauvageau thinks that should have been her. Yeah. That she put in enough time and effort um, and, and paid her dues at various levels, including, you know, the highest level of women's hockey, but also coaching junior hockey in the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League and Hall of Famer Serge Savard hiring her to, to work with his junior franchise at the time. You can sense the frustration that, you know, that moment has eluded her. And and yet, you know, it, it, hopefully there's going to be some young girl that reads Daniel Silverjo's story in the book and say, well, I'm going to I'm going to be the one that powers through and and times are going to change and it's going to get better. And I'm going to be that person that's that's behind the bench. Yeah. So absolutely. Um, 
All right, last one I want to, to, to get at because if in just in terms of pure inspiration and the timing, you know, everyone talks about 2020 and it's the worst and it's been it's been a year for sure. Um, I loved the No Bad Days chapter with Rob Faka. Is it Faka? I don't know Rob is in his son Louie. Yeah. It's a yeah, Faka. Faka yeah. Faka. <laughs> yeah, Faka. And and just the idea of of sitting there saying, you know, we're all dealing with various anxieties or in, like different spectrums of everything. And here's this, you know, his, his son, uh, Louis is diagnosed with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Um, and you know, that as a dad can just floor you. And, you know, he, he just sounds like Rob is, you know, a completely upbeat guy. And, and, um, but even that, you know, something like that is, is enough to, to stop you in your tracks. And I, I connected with this chapter for a lot of reasons. One, you know, there are no bad, like you have your health. There's no bad days, right? Like it's as difficult as this yeah, year has been. No there should be no bad days. <laughs> right. And there are, right. and we've all had them and we're all dealing with it. Um, and just from, you know, he's talking about coaching at Western and that's my, you know, family members went there, Western Michigan. It was, you know, yeah. local to me. And then just having, you know, a son and how you deal with the son who's different and who you have this in your mind, how it's going to turn out and he's going to be a hockey player and he's got big mitts already. I can tell and all this stuff. And now all of a sudden the path changes and how you respond in that family's response and the way the hockey community embraced it to me was, I loved it, it like completely inspirational. Like that was, yeah, I love that. It, it really is. And, and Rob is so upbeat and his, his family's so upbeat. And I, years before this book was even even before the first book um i got to know rob a little bit i saw the because of his involvement in the hockey community and the fact that he was at western michigan and and the campaign that he launched the no bad days um after after little louie was and louie by the way is a prince of a kid i saw him the last draft we were at or wherever that was vancouver he was the runner for the chicago yeah in vancouver he was the runner for the chicago blackhawk table so I got my picture taken with Louie on the draft floor. But, I, it, you know, he I saw the early stages of the No Bad Days movement that Rob and his family launched on uh, on social media. And I, I just, it was captivating because it's so easy to, to, to put yourself in that situation. Life's good. You have, you have a kid. You, you got great hopes and aspirations of how this is all going to go. And then all of a sudden... You get a diagnosis, and those diagnoses can be can be earth shattering, and and so if you look up Duchenne muscular dystrophy, it's no joke. I mean, it's serious issues in terms of life expectancy, quality of life, and all those things, and and the fact is, you're doing everything you could possibly imagine to keep Louie moving, and to you know everything's positive, everything's positive, and I'm sure that family has has lots of days where. He, where it's going to be, it would otherwise be a bad day if you hadn't sworn there are going to be no bad days. <laughs> right. And, and, and I got to, I got to meet Rob's mom and dad in London. I, I can't remember the circumstances of it, but grandpa Bob, as we call him. Yeah. Um, Who sounds he, unreal he was, by the way. He, oh, they're the best people. They're so, they're so wonderful. And, and so he decided he wanted to do something for his grandson in the no bad days movement. So he was going to basically duplicate a very similar um, fundraising venture from the guy who invented the Duchesne Muscular Dystrophy Association. 
and um, I, I believe uh, his his name was uh, was John Davidson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. And and so he he went on a walk. He he walked from I think it was Quebec City to London, where they're from London, Ontario. But one summer, and it was absolutely incredible. And uh, and I went down and did some promotional work to to help them with it, and got to meet uh, Louis's grandparents and, uh, and and that. So it was just you know I, I knew in the back of my mind if you're going to tell an inspiring story somewhere along the line, uh, the Facker family needs to be included in it. So yeah, it's uh, it's it's good stuff. It's awesome, and I you know I think right now everybody can you know that's these are the kind of stories that we need and so the book is everyday hockey heroes by bob mckenzie and jim lang incredible holiday gift i'm sure everybody should read it and bob thanks for not only doing this but for for giving this platform to these incredible stories it's it was great well craig thank you for giving me the platform to talk about these incredible stories and uh, as i say it's uh, it's a great franchise to be part of Everyday Hockey Heroes because our, our team is so great. And uh, Sarah St. Pierre and Jim Lang, uh, Sarah, I always say she's the soul and conscience of this whole thing in terms mm. of understanding the uh, sort of the raison d'etre of, of, the, of the inspiring stories. And, uh, and Jimmy does, you know, the lion's share of the really heavy lifting um, on the writing front and uh, in group to be a part of. And, and honestly, uh, not to get modeling or whatever, but it, the whole thing's been a game changer for me and how I view the world, mm. and how I view the hockey world, and um, it, uh, you know, it, 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 these books give you all the feels, you know. I want to thank Bob Genzie again for joining the podcast. Always great to catch up with Bob. He he is the best. And again, his book is called Everyday Hockey Heroes: More Inspiring Stories About Our Great Game. He wrote it with Jim Lang, and it is. It's a great gift. It's a great inspirational read for 2020. Um, Just a great way to end the year. So I would encourage you to check that out. Also, while you're checking things out, check out the comments section on each podcast episode of The Athletic app. Rate and subscribe to The Full 60 on Apple. And while you're listening to podcasts, definitely check out Two Man Advantage this week. They had Stanley Cup winner John Cooper. That's our guest. John's guest, excuse me. John is one of my favorites to talk to. He's great. I'm sure. I haven't listened yet. I will. But I'm sure it's an amazing episode because Coop is unreal. So check that out. All right. Thanks again to Bob for joining the episode. Thank you for listening and have a great week. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.